Amen. Go ahead and be seated. And as you do, grab your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to two places. I need you to find Romans chapter 8. We will get there at the end of the service. And then also uh, open up to Jeremiah chapter 29. This morning we continue our, our, our series through twisted, misused verses of the Bible. And we're going to unpack Jeremiah 29 11. But before we even get started on that, just a reminder, I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm not trying to, you know, be harsh on you or towards you. I'm not trying to make you redesign the decorations in your homes or anything like that. What I am trying to do is make sure that you have a firm understanding on the Word of God so that you can rightly apply it to your lives and use it to encourage other people in their lives. So this morning we need to talk about uh, what's often used and often seen, and that's the scripture with Jeremiah 29, 11. There uh, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, the plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Like when you're nearing um, graduation, high school graduations, you want to go buy a graduation card or a graduation gift, this is something that you'll see all over the place in gift sections. Uh, some of you might have this uh, scripture on the walls in your home. And, and there's beautiful truths that we can extract from this that apply to us. But there's also some danger in misusing this for something that it wasn't intended for. And I want to address those dangers because often we have this false idea that if we just put our faith and trust in Jesus and that if we just be faithful to him, then everything in life is going to be great, our road is going to be beautiful, and God is going to pour out an overabundance of material blessings into our lives. We'll have no sickness, we'll have no pain, we'll have no problems, and we'll cling to verses like this, trying to talk ourselves into that reality the problem is that reality doesn't really exist. And so, in order for us to truly understand what is happening in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse number 11, we need to have a better understanding of the context to which this promise was declared. So first of all, we know that this is from Jeremiah. What do we know about Jeremiah? Jeremiah is uh, referred to as uh, the weeping prophet because Jeremiah cried a whole lot. He cried before God on behalf of the people. He cried before people on behalf of God. He warns Judah of their impending doom if they fail to listen and repent from their gross idolatry that they were embracing and practicing in and amongst themselves. He pleads with God uh, to spare the life of his, of his children. Uh, he weeps. No one's listening. He weeps because often he's all alone. And in the end, the people of Judah stubbornly refuse to listen to his warnings. They stubbornly refuse to repent. And as a result, God brings his judgment on his people. And that judgment was in the form of turning them over into the hands of their enemy. And they were led into exile, exile in Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is kind of like what we need to understand. So in order to understand and appreciate 29-11, we need to back up a little bit and get a bigger picture of what's happening here. And so trying not to make us start in Jeremiah chapter 1 and work all the way through to chapter 29 because that would be a really long service 
and I don't know if you could hang with me that long. I know I couldn't even listen to my talk, myself talk that long. So I, I backed up just to chapter 27. So, so, so turn a page over. Let's get to chapter 27, right? Chapter 27, imagine the scene. Verse number 2 says, Thus the Lord said to me, Make yourself straps and a yoke bars and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, the king of Sidon, by the hands of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. I'll unpack that in just a minute. Verse 4, give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who, by my great power and my outstretched arm, have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. So a couple things that's happening here. God commands Jeremiah to, to make a yoke, uh, you know, those things that you hitch together, uh, teams of oxen to, to work the fields, he, he tells him to make a yoke and, and to put it around his neck. And then he gives him a word to send to these messengers or these special delegates. And we see them listed in verse number two. Uh, the king of Edom, king of Moab, king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, uh, the king of Sinon. This envoy, they were in Jerusalem in order to meet with King Zedekiah. So the question that we ought to consider is, what are these delegates doing meeting with the, the king Zedekiah? What, what's happening here? Well, I believe what they're, most likely what they're doing is they're gathering together to discuss the possibility of uniting together in a possible attempt to overthrow the, the Babylonian Empire. I think they're trying to uh, collaborate together to stop the oppression from Babylon. Now, if that's the case, then imagine then hearing God's message that He is the one that makes the earth. He is the one that makes all life on earth. And He can give to it anyone whom He pleases. So the one selected by God to subdue all the nations was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. God announced that all nations would serve Babylon until the time for its time to be judged came. And so we get this section in the beginning of, of chapter 27, and then this little paragraph from uh, verses 8 through 11, where we now see that the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was divinely appointed by God for a very specific purpose then Jeremiah warns the ambassadors not to rebel. In fact, he says, any nation that refused to bow its neck under the Babylon uh, yoke would be punished by sword, famine, and pestilence. Look there in verse number 8. He says, if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by His hand. So then, 
for, for the first time, immediately following, for the first of three times in chapter 27, Jeremiah warns his audience not to listen to false prophets. He gives a, a strong warning. There are false religious leaders there that were speaking lies to the people. They were speaking lies by telling them that there would be a successful rebellion against Babylon. We know that this is not true. We know that it's lies because look at verse number 10. Verse number 10 says, For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you with the results that you will be removed far from your land and I will drive you out and you will perish. Only those nations that would submit to the authority of Babylon would be allowed to remain in their land. You see that in verse number 11. You get to verses 12 through 15, and now we see Jeremiah delivering the same message to the king of Judah. Again, the prophet's word contains two parts, two main sections. The first part, he tells the king to bow his neck under the Babylon yoke. In fact, to, to take on a lesser role, continue to serve Babylon, but as a vessel king. That, that's the first part. And then the second part of his message uh, to the king of Judah was, again, not to listen to the false prophets that were among them. They were, they were predicting victory. They were prophesying lies because God hadn't sent them and God didn't give them that message to speak to the people. And then you get to uh, verses 16 through 22, and Jeremiah again delivers his message. This time he's delivering it to the priest and to the people. And there again, he's cautioning them, don't listen to the false prophets. Look at what he says in verse 16. Then I spoke to the priests and to all this people, saying, Thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who are prophesying to you, saying, Behold, the vessel of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. Do not listen to them. Serve, serve the king of Babylon and live. He's trying to bring clarity in the midst of a whole lot of confusion. And a lot of people are speaking under the name of the Lord, but they weren't speaking a message directly from him. And so then we get to chapter 28. And chapter 28 is really a continuation of chapter 27. Now the specific time that Jeremiah gave these messages in chapter 27 is not known. But what is very interesting is that when his opposition begins to speak here in chapter 28, Jeremiah takes the time, makes the effort, so that he could tell us the exact time of when his opposition began to speak. Notice what it says in chapter 28, verse number 1. It says, In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, then he says, in the fifth month of the fourth year. So, so Jeremiah's message was challenged, and it's challenged by this individual named Hananiah, son of Azor. And so it's, it, it occurs within the fifth month of the fourth year. Now what we're going to see is that Hananiah's message was in a direct contradiction to the message that Jeremiah was prophesying 
Because Hananiah said that God promised to, to break the yoke of the, of the Babylon Empire. He would end the Babylon oppression. And so Hananiah was urging the people of Judah to join in with other nations to rebel against Babylon. And so we have two prophets that are giving completely different messages to the people which is a warning to us that we should apply today just because a person a pastor or a speaker gives a message in the name of the lord you better make sure it's a message that comes directly from the lord so then in verse number two, it continues. Verse two and three says, Thus says the Lord of hope, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. So this is the message of Hananiah. And Hananiah is saying, Thus says the Lord of hope, Hananiah goes on to promise not just that the rebellion would end, but he also goes on to promise that it, that rebellion would be followed by a period of restoration. And so here we have these two prophets that are making conflicting claims, each one of them attributing their message to God. And so the ultimate test for a prophet was whether or not their prophecies came true, right? So a prophet was known to be sent by God if what they spoke actually occurred. So time would tell which one of these prophets was a true prophet and which one was a false prophet. But I want you to see this dramatic exchange that happens between Jeremiah and Hananiah. Look at verse number 5 of chapter 28. It says, Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah the prophet, in the presence of the priest and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring back uh, to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. Yet hear now this word that I speak to you in hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, a pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. Like, you see what's happening? Hen and I just got through saying, hey, it's not going to be so bad. In a couple of years, we're going to have victory, and we're going to overthrow them, and then everything's going to be restored. And so Jeremiah replies, oh, well, may the Lord make that happen, how, how great that would be. But don't forget, the ancient prophets, what they had to say about war, famine, and pestilence. And those that are prophesying peace, well, time will tell. Time will tell if you're a true messenger from God. And then in verse number 10, it says, Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet, and he broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so, I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. Then I love how it says, But Jeremiah the prophet 
went his way. Rather than openly insulting and confronting Hananiah, Jeremiah simply went his own way. And then what we know next is look at the very next verse in verse number 12. It says, sometimes after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke bars from off the neck of Jeremiah, the prophet, the, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah just simply walks away. And then sometime afterwards, the word of the Lord came to him. And so God used uh, Hananiah's action to show the harshness of the coming judgment. Hananiah broke the, the wooden yoke that was around Jeremiah's neck. But God would replace that wooden yoke around the prophet's neck with a yoke of iron that could not be broken. And that iron yoke, figuratively speaking, would be fastened to the necks and all the nations, those that gathered in, in Jerusalem. We're talking about all those nations that were represented back in chapter 27, verse number 3. So the nations of Edom and Moab and Ammon and Tyre and, and Sidon. So after answering Hananiah's predictions in verses 12 through 14, Jeremiah then goes on the subtle attack on Hananiah's credentials. And he says in verse number 15, Jeremiah the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. So as judgment on Hananiah, judgment on Hananiah, as well as vindication on the prophet Jeremiah, God said that he was going to remove Hananiah from the face of the earth. He said that he would remove him from the face of the earth within the year. And so what do we know from the very beginning of the chapter? We already know that they're in the fourth year of the reign, they're in the fifth month of the year. So sometime over the next seven-month time span, Hananiah's life was going to be taken. Notice what happens, how God fulfills this in verse number 17. It says, in that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. So, in less than two months after Jeremiah's prediction, Hananiah dies. God vindicated the true prophet Jeremiah while also judging the false prophet Hananiah. It's with this as the background that we now arrive to chapter 29. So now we've made it to the right chapter. So here we see that God's people have been scattered across Babylon. They're experiencing all kinds of suffering. They're experiencing all kinds of hardship. The exiles have lost everything but their lives. They might have escaped from their land with very little possessions that they carried with them into the exile. I mean, they lost their freedoms. They're now captives. They've been taken from their homes. They've lost their means of making a living. They were separated from family and friends, some of whom even died on the long march from Jerusalem to Babylon. It's with this as the background 
And you gotta understand that no matter how you look at it, the situation seems helpless from their perspective. Now they have two prophets that are saying two different things. Some are trying to rally around the hope that this is only going to be two years and relief is going to come. Others are hearing another message that don't listen to that message because that's a lie. Now there's confusion among the people because they don't understand what's next or what to do. All of this is within the context that God gives the message through Jeremiah to his chosen people. And so look at verse number 4. Verse number 4 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Then he tells them, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Uh, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You notice what his message was? They're in turmoil. They're struggling. They're in hardship. They're separated. They're afraid. They're desperate. And God tells his people, you know what? Settle in. It's going to be a long ride. Relief's not coming anytime soon. And you got to understand, why are they in exile in the first place? It's because the children have disobeyed our father. They, they've embraced idolatry. So God rightfully execute his punishment, his judgment upon his people, sending them into exile. Now they're in exile, and it's harsh, and it's, they're struggling, and God's message to them was, settle in. Get comfortable. You're going to be there for a while. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. Gardens that will produce, because you're going to need something to eat. Give your children away in marriage. Don't decrease in population during this time. Make sure that you're multiplying and increasing. Not, not only that, he says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. So the place that you've been exiled to, you're to be seeking its prosperity, its growth. He, he says, pray. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. So pray for Babylon. Not that God would bring Babylon to an end, but that God would give uh, plenty to Babylon. It says, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So now pray for those that have captured you, that they would grow and prosper, because as they grow and they prosper, then that will overflow into prosperity for you and relief for you. And the restoration of the exiles to Judah would happen, but only after God's 70 years of judgment that would come. 70 years. So the people that left and were exiled, when they heard this message and they were given the command to settle down, they knew what they were in for. They were in for a long, difficult journey. 
And so the people that hear the message are the people that aren't going to be the recipients of the blessing that's to come. They're going to die. They're going to die before the blessings and the promises come. You understand? They want relief. And God says, settle in. Oh, relief's coming, but not until the judgment is finalized. You don't look like you think that's good news. <laughs> look what he says in verse 8. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 70 years. That 70 year exile was a part of God's plan to bring Judah hope in the future. This judgment prompts the exiles to seek God wholeheartedly. And once they turned their back to God, then he would gather them from a, among the nations that he scattered them to, and he would return them back to their land. The larger purpose of the exile was to force the people back to God. And then we arrive at God's beautiful promise to those that are in exile. We see that in verse number 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God gave them a promise in verse number 10. He says that the promise, the very last phrase, to bring you back to this place. He gives them a promise in verse number 10 that he's going to deliver them and he would keep his promise. And that's great news. God always keeps His promises. He is faithful to deliver every single time. God makes His plan for His people. And there are good plans that ultimately bring hope and peace. Therefore, there's no need for His people to be afraid, nor is there any need for His people to be discouraged. God will always provide for His people. He will always give us the strength that we need in order to face whatever obstacle that we're presented with. Even when we make the mistake, even when it's our fault, even when it's our sin that brings bad circumstances into our lives, if we will truly turn to God in repentance, in full devotion and commitment to Him, then and only then will he deliver us from the crushing weight of suffering. 
listen to the encouragement of God's Word to be both content and to be more than conquerors in whatever circumstances we face. Philippians chapter 4, from verses 11 through 13, it says this. It says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I could do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, with that in mind, is there any sense in which Jeremiah chapter 29, verse number 11 applies to us today? I would say absolutely yes, there is. After all, this verse reflects the more general principle of God's grace and His affection for His children. And that includes the modern church today. So the more general application can be made to us and applied to us because of the unchanging nature and character of our God. So God had promised to bring Israel back. Therefore, the exiles could rest assured because they knew the faithfulness of God, and then they can have a future and a hope, not based upon their own strength or their own doing, but solely based upon the promise provided to them by God. So God promised to bring them back, and it's a promise that He fulfilled. For us today, God has provided, provided promises to believers that apply only to believers. They're unique to us. For instance, God has promised that our sins are forgiven and that we can stand before God completely justified. That's a beautiful promise. We put our faith and trust in Him. Then we're forgiven and we've been justified. God also says that He has plans for those who are in Christ. And, and those plans are good. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse number 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, for those who are in Christ, we can be confident that all things can work together for good, for, for the good of God, for the good of us. That God has a future plan for us. In fact, let's just break down this verse just a little bit. Romans chapter 8, verse number 28 says, and we know, that's why you have your Bible there in Romans 8. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. you got to understand that phrase. All things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. So God works all things together for good, both His good and our good. The promise is that in all things, God works for the good. It does not say that all things are good. Because not all things are good. Some things are wickedly evil, bad. But God is able to even use those things to work them together for good. He sees the big picture. He has a master plan. 
And if you read through the Scriptures, you can see Paul's life as a perfect example of this reality. In Paul's life, we see how God in all things works for the good. Paul suffered shipwrecks, beatings, imprisonments. They tried to murder him. All sorts of evil and wicked stuff was done towards Paul, all within God's plan and purpose to spread the gospel. So through it all, God was steadfastly working to bring about good and glorious results. So we too have been given promises to rely on just like Israel was. So, if by quoting Jeremiah 29, 11, and you're thinking about the security that you have in Christ, if you're thinking about the hope that you have because of what Christ has done on our behalf and what God promises to do for us, then if that's what you're thinking, then the wording is appropriate even if the historical context does not apply. Context is so important. See, Jeremiah 29, 11 must be understood in the context of the whole book of Jeremiah. And then the whole book of Jeremiah must be understood in the context of Israel's story. But then the book of Jeremiah and all of Israel's story must be understood in the context of God's purpose in Jesus Christ. You see, all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. All the promises. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 12 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So if we are in Christ, then all of the horrors of judgment that's warned about through the prophets, well, if we are in Christ, then all of that has been transferred from us to Jesus upon the cross. And all the blessings that have been promised, promised to Abraham's offspring, have now been added to us in our lives. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then verse 14 says, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And so God tells us that since we are in Christ, then we, then we can receive the promised Spirit of faith, that the blessings of Abraham might come into our lives. And not only that, we need to have a better perspective on this world and our placement in it. Far too many of us are way too comfortable in this world trying to make it our home when the Word of God says, this isn't home. This ain't it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, See, we're exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
We are strangers and exiles in this world. And God has a plan for us in and through Christ Jesus. And that plan is not for our destruction, but it's for our well-being. Now think about this. Jeremiah 29, 11 promised that the nation of Israel would be restored. But very few of the exiles that lived when the promise was made were actually alive to see the fulfillment of that promising. Promising. Of that prophecy. They died. Within that 70 years, the overwhelming majority of them that heard it proclaimed never saw it come about. So most of them died without seeing the future that God had planned for them. So likewise, the future and the hope that we have in Christ is not a guarantee that everything will go well in this world. For most believers throughout history and for most believers in the world today, this world is a cold, dangerous, dark, twisted place to live. In fact, the promises that are outlined in Romans chapter 8 say that even though believers will face all sorts of dangers and persecution in this life, we can rest assured we can have hope because Jesus Christ will never abandon us. Now, may you never forget that God is always faithful to his promise and no matter where you are or what you're faced with, God will never abandon you. Even if you're experiencing judgment, you're experiencing discipline as a result of your sin, which was happening in Jeremiah, even if you brought it upon yourself, God will not abandon you. And so, find encouragement. When you see Jeremiah 29, 11, understand the beautiful truths that are behind that, how God is faithful to his people, and he has a plan and he has a purpose. And even when we bring bad things upon ourselves because of our own stupidity and our own sin, aren't we glad that God doesn't look at us and say, eh, forget you. Oh, he still has a plan, a hope, and a future. And he wants to do amazingly great things in and through our lives, but we have to trust him and submit ourselves to him and fully rely on him. And no matter what it is that we face, Jesus Christ will always be there for those that believe in him. I want to wrap it up with your Bibles in Romans chapter 8. If you've already closed them, open them back up. I'm not done. Romans 8. Joel's looking at the screen. It's not going to be there. <laughs> Romans 8. With that in mind, let me finish by reading this. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of, the, of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword, as it is written. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a promise for the children of God. And just like the nation of Israel held close to the promise that was declared to them through Jeremiah chapter 29, we too can hold close the promises that God declares unto us. So use Jeremiah 29 to remind you of God's faithfulness that he always sees through what he promises that he will do. And may you be encouraged no matter what it is that you're facing. That God is faithful and nothing, no one, no circumstance, no situation, nothing that you've done nor nothing that has been done to you can separate you from the love of God. Let's pray, church. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. And forgive us, Father, of how we are so wishy-washy in our pursuit of you. How we are so unfaithful in our uh, commitment to doing the good works that you've called us to do, that you prepared in advance to be done. God, help us to wake up in this life. Help us to wake up with a hunger to faithfully please you and to glorify you in everything that we do. And may we hold true to your promises. May we not listen to false teachers, false prophets, false declarations that don't apply to us or don't come from you, but may we so love your word, may we so know your word, that whenever something that is spoken is untrue, we would immediately recognize it as a lie because it's not rooted in your word. So God, thank you for who you are and what you've done and what you promised to do. Help us to live a life of full devotion to you. And even when things get tough, May we cling to the promise that you've made on our behalf. In Christ's name I pray, amen.